mentioned, I uh, don't, I spend most of my time out of the country, living in jungles and uh, other places of the world where unreached people group and stuff like that, so I'm privileged to, to be here today, and I'm the man with two last names. My first name is Walker, my last name is Moore, and people get it mixed up all the time. They call my wife Mrs. Walker, uh, Mrs. Moore, Moore Walker. In fact, the other day I was coming out of Denver, they had my name backwards on their airplane, and they wouldn't let me on my ticket, they wouldn't let me on the plane. They're looking for a Moore Walker. I said, I guarantee you he's not showing up. He sent me to take his place, and they wouldn't be convinced, and I got kicked off the flight. So, But it's the greatest name to have as a missionary. I could not have a better name in all the world as a missionary. It's the first name, Walker. After the Tiananmen Square uprising in China, remember that rebellion in China they had? The Communist Party hired me to come in to straighten out the rebellion of teenagers in China. And, and I didn't want to go to China because I really don't like Chinese food, you know. I mean, they're Chinese food. Uh, fish eyeballs, fish heads, you know, chicken feet, that kind of stuff. The second thing is I don't do real well with chopsticks. I was in Singapore. My first time I ever had Chinese food, and they were serving fat noodles. If you don't know what they are, they're fat and they're slickery. And, and I almost got to my mouth. I slipped the noodle and went across the restaurant like this. And the Chinese go, don't, don't, don't. You know, and I'm just flipping noodles everywhere. And, and so I didn't want to go to China, but they gave me a diplomatic passport. And said, so if you come, we'll give you the same passport as the President of the United States. I thought that'd be cool to have. So I decided to go to help them with their rebellion and work for the Vice President of China, Hang Zhao. So they taught me how to do all the diplomatic thing, and I had to go through this little class. And when I met the Vice President, I walked through there at the airport. I was supposed to grab his hand, bow lower than he does, say Ni Hao Ma in Chinese, then say my name. So I landed in Beijing, I uh, went to the diplomatic side of the airport, there's Hang Wenzhou and his entourage waiting to welcome me to China. And so I went and grabbed his hand and I bowed very low, I said, Ni Hao Ma, I started to say, Walker, and he goes, Waka, that's a ranger, you know? And all down the line, I heard, Waka, that's a ranger, Waka, that's a ranger. That's all they've ever called me in China. My one name in, all, in almost all the world, wherever I go, they call me Walker, Texas Ranger. I have to tell you one more little story as I was in the, in the village Mahe in the Darien of jung, the jungle of Panama. They're a, a Shoko people group, and they're still natives. The women don't wear clothes, you know, and they're, the men has little loincloths, and it's a very primitive tribe. And I get off the boat, and I go introduce myself, and the interpreter said, this is Walker. And the tribe goes, hey, yo, hell, hey, yo, hell, hell, and they started going up and down and dancing like that. And I said, what's going on here? And they says, they wanted to know if you're Walker, Texas Ranger. I said, how in the jungle, there's no electricity, no running water. How did they Walker, Texas Ranger? Said, Come to so they took me to the chief hut. He had a car battery, had a TV, and had an antenna coming out, and then get one show, Walker, Texas Ranger. So, you know. Well, a few years ago, I got a, a letter and a jacket from Chuck Norris sent to the real Walker, Texas Ranger. So I could tell you story, story how God has used my first name. But I shouldn't even be here today because growing up I had a speech impediment and I could not form words with my mouth. In fact, most people couldn't understand what I said, so I had no friends. And uh, I remember going to school the first day and the teacher asked me, what's your name? I go, my name is Namana, and she couldn't understand me. She goes, oh, you're in the wrong class. And back this is in the 50s. And so she says, uh, you're retarded. You need to go to the retard room. And that's before they call it special ed. So all of a sudden, I found myself for the first seven years of my life in special ed. Now, I love special ed because you don't have to cover the lines, you know. You just do like this on the crayon on the page. They pat you, good job, good job, you know. And they, it's just a cool place to be. And, uh, but when I got in junior high, they mainlined me into regular classes. And I hated that because you have to color within the line in junior high, in regular school, and uh, I still today don't like coloring within the lines. I like being outside the lines. And then uh, I had to go to high school. And in my high school, you had to take speech to get your high school diploma. It was required. Every student. Oh, if you have a speech impediment, and I was going to a speech pathologist three times a week trying to learn to form words and talk, the worst thing is to get a little boy up in front of a speech class with regular kids trying to give a speech. It came to my day to give a speech, and I was so nervous. I could hardly sleep through the night. And I remember getting early that morning. I got way early that morning. I got on my little knees by my bed, and I began to pray, Dear Jesus, come back now. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come before third-hour speech class. I'm just begging Jesus to come back. That's the only answer I had to get out of it. And Jesus didn't come, and I gave my speech, and you all know what happened. The kids made fun of me. And my speech teacher happened to be the organist of our church. He said, Walker, I want to talk to you. 
can you come to my house tonight? I, I want to, to talk to you about your life. So I got my bicycle and I rode over to Mrs. Dow's house. And I get there, she had a piece of paper laying on the table, and she says, uh, Walker, whatever you do in life, don't do anything with verbal skills. I didn't know what the word verbal skills, I said, what's verbal skills? She says, uh, don't do anything where you have to talk as your way of making a living. And she said, you need to do something with manual dexterity. What's manual dexterity? <laughs> they didn't teach that in special ed. They said, you need to find a job you could do with your hands. There's great occupations. You can make a good living. And she said, thank you very much. I needed that. And she says, you can do, uh, you can get a job at McDonald's. And, or you could be a janitor. And there's nothing wrong with those things. So let me tell you, those are jobs. You could be, uh, if you work real hard, you might be a carpenter. If you learn to read rulers and, and do, do some math, you could be a carpenter or a mechanic. And she gave me this whole list. And I thanked her so much for her, you know, pouring into me, speaking to me. She loved me. And, and I walked away that day and said, okay, I, I got some direction here. Well, two weeks later, I'm sitting in church. And all of a sudden, louder than loud, God spoke to me and said, I want you to preach. I thought it was, the Holy Spirit had fallen one person over too far or something, you know, but no, nobody's sitting by me. I go, what? And it happened again. He said, I want you to preach. And in our church, you go forward to the invitation time. So I went forward and told my pastor, God help me today. My pastor said, what? God help me today. What? God help me today. And the pastor finally got it. He said, God has called you to preach? Uh-huh. Today. I thought God called you that day. You're supposed to start that day. See, I, 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 I did not know that you're supposed to fight the will of God for three years. Every missionary here, God called me to Africa, and I fought God will for three years. Three years I fought it, you know. I thought God called me that day. I was supposed to start that day. And I, 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 I told my pastor that, and he said, no. He said, you need to go to college and get you a bachelor's degree. You need to go to seminary and get you a master in theology. And then while you're at seminary, you need to take Hebrew and Greek, and Aramaic language. And I'm thinking, I can't even take English, you know, less alone all these biblical languages and stuff. And I, he says, and when you get your master in theology, I'll let you come back and preach in our church. I don't still don't have a master in theology. And my church has never let me come back and preach. I did preach to 4 million people last year. And the seminary used my textbooks to teach other pastors. But God has a way of doing things, doesn't he? So he gets the greater glory. Well, I had a friend of mine help me call, and I knew I was supposed to start preaching I, that week. That week, I, I just knew that when God called me that day, I was supposed to start that day. And I found a church that let me preach, Second Baptist Church of Linnaeus, Missouri. It's 32 miles from my hometown. Anybody here know where Linnaeus, Missouri is at? I've been preaching for 40 years. Nobody can know where Linnaeus, Missouri is at. Well, it's 32 miles past the Great Commission. You go in the world, take a left. It's kind of like New Mexico. You just drive and drive, and there's a little wide spot in the road. Linus, Missouri is a town of 300 people, if you call that a town. has two churches, first church and second church. I got second church. So that morning I got, we went to this little church and pulled in, a little white church out in the middle of nowhere. has a cemetery around it. I walked in, and I knew it was going to be a small church, but it only had nine people in the church, entire church, nine members. The youngest one was 69. The oldest one was 81. That didn't bother me much. What, I, what bothered me was I did not know it was an African-American church when I went to preach. My first sermon is in an African-American church. Now, have you ever been to an African-American church? What do they do during the service? They repeat, and they yell at you. They talk to you. Bring it on down. Preach it, glory. Hallelujah. Bring it, brother. Bring it. You know, and they're yelling at you through the whole service. Well, if they think you're doing bad or if the Holy Spirit leaves you, then the ladies have something they do. It's called the lazy eight. They reach in their pocket and they grab their hanky by the corner and they start making eight like this. And they start going, help him, Jesus. Help him, Jesus. Help him, Jesus. Well, by the end of my sermon, these ladies were going, help him, Jesus. Help him, Jesus. And they were screaming. And there's only nine people, but I think I counted ten hankies. Somebody was doing double duty that day. And my first sermon, they were waving. Now, you don't think that's unnerving. You try it next Sunday when your pastor's here, okay? You just start waving him and still help him, Jesus, see what happens. Well, when I got done, uh, I knew I didn't do very good. It was my first sermon. I don't speak very well. And one of the men come to 
to me and said, we want to talk to you. I said, I, I know this is my first sermon, and I don't know how to do, I don't know how to preach. And he said, oh, you did fine, you did fine. We hadn't had a pastor in 10 years, and we'd like to call you as our pastor. I said, let me pray about it. Okay. And that afternoon, I became the pastor of Second Baptist Church. The next two years, I spent pastoring in an all-black church. I'm a black pastor if you don't know it. And I began to preach hour after hour after hour after hour, day in and day out. I mean, long messages, sermons, and my tongue got clearer and clearer, and, 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 and God began to do work, and, and people began to understand me. And it was an incredible journey, those two years, how God began to loosen my tongue. At the end of the, uh, uh, I was preaching there, I got a call from Los Angeles and asked if I would come and preach the all-black pastor conference in Los Angeles. Now, you know, our, usually our convention always has, like, I'm preaching the convention this week and next week, and we have a black pastor coming. Well, in their conference, they have a white pastor comes, and I'm the token white pastor for the convention this time. And so I get to Los Angeles, and there's 10,000 African-American pastors. Now, by this time, I know all the, the ins and outs and know how to sing in song. I don't you know this, but every sermon has to end on heaven. Because during the slavery time, there was no hope except for heaven. Heaven was the only hope they had. And so every sermon has to end in heaven. And so I, I knew all the ins and outs. So I got to preach my turn to preach. And I started preaching. And sir, right where you're sitting, this guy started yelling, to, started yelling in the middle of my feet. He goes, fix it, brother, fix it, fix it, brother, fix it. And he starts screaming, fix it, as loud as he can. Now, he's yelling in my left ear. And I'm trying to concentrate on the text here. At the same time, I'm trying to see what's broken. I don't know where the flowers fell over. I don't know what's going on. And he just kept on yelling, fix it, brother, and wouldn't stop. He realized he hadn't communicated to me yet, so he stood up and started waving at me, trying to get my attention. He was going like this, yelling, fix it, brother, fix it, fix it. Then a thought came to my mind. I know what's wrong. But how do you check something like that in front of 10,000 people? I think my zipper's undone. <laughs> and that thought came to my mind. Because he's yelling, waving at me, tell me to fix it. So in an African-American church, it's very easy to check out, okay? And I went, and God! <laughs> it's fine. And I kept on going. Now he's doing jumping jacks. He's jumping up and down high as he can, screaming at the top of his voice, waving his arms, just yelling, fix it, brother, fix it. So finally I stopped. I turned to the moderator. I said, what does he want? He's, I'm trying to preach, and he's yelling, fix it. He said, don't you know what that means? I said, I've never heard that terminology before. He said, oh, it's a good one. He said, while he was sitting in the darkness, and he opened the word of God, the Holy Spirit began to illuminate the truth in the, in the darkness of his heart. And for the first time, the light came on. He just caught it. He just seen the truth. And what he wants is for you not to move on to the next point. He wants you to park it right there to expand upon it, to expand upon it, open up the window, and let all the light shine in you can on that truth because he just caught it. He wants you to fix it for him. That's pretty good, isn't it? Turn your Bibles to Acts 8 chapter. As you turn there, I want you to take a piece of paper, take your bulletin, and carry, tear up a little piece of paper just like this and hang on to it. You need to borrow my piece of my paper? Okay, I'll give you a little piece right here. You hold it right there. Okay, good. Huh? Acts 8, chapter, verse 26. And I want you to hold on a piece of paper. This is so important. Hold on to this little piece of paper through the entire service. You got it? You need some paper? I got some extra paper here. You all need some? We got it. Okay, you think they're fine? 2,000 years ago, Jesus told us to go into all the world. And all the churches since that time and all the believers in the world together has not made it into all the world. What do I hear? What do you say to that? Fix it, brother. I want to fix it this morning. And since I'm a black pastor, I want you to, we're going to get into this little rhythm here, and I want you to help me with it, and I want you to pre repeat something back. We'll get here in a minute. In Acts 8, chapter, verse 26, it says, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Now, I don't know what it means when it says an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. There was Philip in bed, and all of a sudden he heard something fluttered above his bed, and he opened his eye, and he hears this angel, Philip! Whoa! You know, he goes, what's, you know, I don't know what it means 
when the angel of the Lord came to Philip? I don't know. But some messenger came to him. And why did he come to Philip? Let's give Philip a title this morning. Philip is a willing witness. Somewhere Philip had said to God, I'll go anytime, any place, anywhere, and in any circumstances. And when God speaks to me, my next heartbeat is a heartbeat of obedience. So what I want you to say now, I will say this over and over again. My next heartbeat's a heartbeat of, and you say obedience. So let's try it. Your next heartbeat's a heartbeat of obedience. That's it, okay? And so he came to Philip because Philip was a willing witness. And somewhere he had said to God, I'll go any place, anywhere, anytime. And my next heartbeat's a heartbeat of and when God speaks to me. So the angel said to him, get up and take the back road from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's all he said. One line. Now we know Philip is not a Baptist because Baptist always says this. God will say, get up and take this road. And we'll say, how much does it cost? Okay. And can you tell me what we're going to eat there? Because I don't want to eat cats and dogs and all that kind of stuff and weird things, you know. they got that weird stuff. And we'll get shopping. What day is shopping day? No, the angel said, get up, take the back road to Jerusalem to Gaza. That's all he said. And since he's a willing witness, his next heartbeat was a heartbeat of obedience. The Bible says in verse 27, he arose and went. Now, isn't that incredible that when just one little line he didn't know why he's going. He didn't know where he's supposed to go to. He did, all his next heartbeat was a heartbeat of obedience. And he's on the back road. And behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official, Candice, queen of Ethiopia. This guy was high ranking. He was a secretary treasurer in charge of all the money for all the country of uh, Ethiopia. And he was turning, turning in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now he's in his chariot on the back road. Now, how many people, have you ever seen a scroll in the Old Testament, what they look like, the big round things that you like this? What are the odds somebody would have a scroll in the glove box of his chariot in Jesus' time? I mean, it's just, you got to be the weirdest thing to see. A guy in a chariot with a scroll trying to read it going down the road. And what happened, the Bible says... As he was turning, verse 28, in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit spoke to Philip and said, go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had run up, because Philip, you know why he ran? Because he's a willing witness, and the next heartbeat's a heartbeat of obedience. He ran, exactly right, ran up, and guess what? He said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I, unless somebody explains it to me? So all of a sudden now we have a second person. We have Philip, the willing witness. Now we have the Ethiopian eunuch, who is the seeking soul. See, a seeking soul is someone the Holy Spirit is working on before you ever got there. See, I've never got to a person that, as a willing witness, to a person that God was already there. He always gets there before you. He's already at work, setting up for you. In fact, he does all the work. You just come and join him in the work that God is doing. So here's this Ethiopian. He's trying to read the prophet Isaiah. He doesn't understand it, but he wants to know about it. So he asked Philip to explain to him, okay? And he says, verse 31, well, how can I unless someone comes and guides me? Invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage was out of Isaiah. And what happened, he began to explain to him from Isaiah about Jesus. Look at verse 35. And Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture, preached Jesus to him. As they went along the word, they came to the water. And he said, look at water. What prevents you from being baptized? Now, all of a sudden, the Ethiopian eunuch had received the message, had believed in Jesus. And now he's a willing witness. And his next heartbeat's a heartbeat of? And it's obedience in baptism. So all of a sudden now, we've got two willie witnesses here sitting in the, in the chariot. And he ordered, verse 38, the chariot to stop. They both went down the water. Philip was the eunuch, and he baptized him. But verse 39 is weird. When they came on the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. God literally picked Philip out of the water and transported him somewhere else. In verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus. Where's Azotus? It's 30 miles the wrong direction from Jerusalem. He was going south. It's, it's 30 miles north of Jerusalem. I can imagine church. Did we not raise up money to send Philip to Gaza? He never made it to Gaza. That's the last time we're going to support him. And why did, why did Philip end up in Azotus? Because God needed a willing witness who next heartbeat was a heartbeat of obedience. We always find ourselves in weird places all the time as willing witness because he puts us in a place where he knows that when he speaks to us, our next heartbeat's a heartbeat of Now, let me tell you what it is. So we've talked to you about missionaries and, and everybody think, oh, everybody be a missionary. No, don't be a missionary. Forget that. Missionary is so, we have so corrupted that word because we think it's somebody who goes 
come forward crying and leave all the world and go to seminary and then end up some foreign country? No, that's not it. Every believer is a missionary and everywhere you go is a mission field. But I really say, let's call ourselves the Church of the Willing Witness. That every believer here, guess what? Wherever God speaks to us, we will next heartbeat be heartbeat of. So what happened is this. A willing witness is always being moved towards seeking soul. When I became a willing witness, God always moved me towards seeking soul. When a willing witness seeking soul come together, you have what's called the divine encounter. That we say WW plus SS equals DE. Okay, that's our formula for our lifestyle of a missionary. Now I'm going to tell you three days in my life, only three days in my life, how this works. I take young people on their Christian bar mitzvah. They go in for five weeks. I teach them how to lay down their adolescent and become full-fledged adult and walk out their faith as adult. We took Mike Napier, who's been with us, and we hope well, some of the days some more of your students will come with us and join this journey of what it is to be a full-fledged believer and follower of Christ. And we're working in Budapest, Hungary, because the wall had just fallen down. You know, the Communist Party was, uh, the Communists had taken over Hungary. The wall just fell down. And we moved in and start working the whole Eastern Europe block. And on Saturday night, I had a group of students come in from the United States to join me to help me go out and do church planning. And what we do is called chronological Bible storing. And we have produced a, uh, from creation to the resurrection, done as an allegory. We have kings and knights and evil knights, and they change into costumes and dragons. And it's a really cool thing. It draws huge crowds. Then we explain to the crowd, the king is God, the son is Jesus, the uh, evil knight is Satan, and the people have been deceived at you. You're in the, in the presentation. And then we begin to win them one by one to the Lord, and we start churches. I've done it in 48 countries this way. And uh, the music's done by our band. We used to have a band called the All-Star Band. They have a new name now. I don't like their new name. They call themselves Mercy Me. And, and, and we, yeah, I only can imagine, right? And so, but they, they, I discipled them as they were growing up, and they're originally out of our ministry. So, so. Uh, we're in Budapest, and students come in to join us to do this chronological Bible story. Well, I always hate the first night in a foreign country. Have you ever seen teenagers with jet lag? I mean, it's like the, I mean, it's just like hurting ants or, or hurting worms. I don't know. Come on. I said, hurry, hurry, hurry. We need to get ready. And, and the girls forget this 220 socket, and they put their 110 hair dryer in a 220 socket, and turn on the hair dryer, breaks down. And then they're crying, hurry. And I'm trying to get ready because that morning, Sunday morning, we have to walk to the tram, take the tram to the subway, take the subway to the bus station, and take the bus out to the church. We're going. And so I'm trying to get ready. We go down. Finally got to the tram uh, station there, and we're waiting for the tram to come by. And, and, and or trolley, you probably call it this part of the world. And, and uh, we're waiting for it and waiting. I looked at the sign. It says it comes every nine minutes. But we've been waiting 30 minutes for the next nine-minute tram. You know what those signs in Europe means? Nothing. They come when they come. They go when they go. And you don't have to, don't even, just wait, okay? So finally comes up. We get on it. We go down to the subway station. And there's a subway. So students, let's hurry and get on that subway. So we're walking very fast. As soon as I get the subway door, it closes, pulls off, leaves us on the dock. Now we have to wait for the next subway. It finally pulls up. We get in it, go down three stop, walk up to the bus station, and there's bus 16, our bus. It's an empty bus. And I told the student, let's run. We can't miss. We need to catch this bus. So we started running toward the bus. The bus driver looks out, and I can see the panic come on his face because he sees 20 American teenagers coming toward him like this. One fat guy going, and, and, and I run. And he looks, he doubles takes, he closes the door, pulls off, and leaves us in the dust. Now, we have to wait for the next bus. It's 30 minutes later. It shows up, and it is packed. I mean, totally packed. You know, they don't sit down. They hang from a plastic strap. You can't even see daylight through the windows. It looks like a sardine of human flesh. I told our students, you, we have to get on this bus. Half of you get in the back. Half of you get in the middle. I'm going to get in the front door. Uh, so I talked talk to the bus driver. We are literally pushing people in one body at a time. The bus driver's trying to close the door, and we're blocking the door. And finally, we all got in there. If he fainted, we'd never fall to the ground. We were so packed in like that. I have to be honest with you, I get in the front for three reasons. One is talk to the bus driver, make sure I get off the right stop. The second thing is you stand like this, your armpit is exposed, and no one in Europe uses deodorant. So the time the wind goes through 180 armpit, it gets pretty rank at the back of the bus. The third is the women don't shave their pits, so usually grandma's stuck there, but she has a bush hanging out like this, and it's floating in my nose, and up, you know, and you want to take a weed eater to it. Come on, grandma, either braid it or something. I don't care. Don't let it float around like that, you know. And so on the front of the bus, you have less like that. So I'm hanging on to the bus for dear life, and I look in the back of the bus, and I see a tall boy in the very back that has a cap on that says J.C. 
Satan. JC in English stands for Jesus Christ. I go, I wonder if this boy is a believer. And God says, find out. Since I'm a willing witness, my next heartbeat's a heartbeat of. And I tell him I go any place, anytime, anywhere, under any situation, which includes armpits, hairy armpits, stinky armpits. And, and so, so I start making my way. Now, being a special ed student, language is very difficult for me. And so I, if I'm in a country like Mexico, I use bueno for everything. Bueno, 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 you know. Now I can say taco bueno, taco no bueno, and yo quiero taco bell. That's my Spanish, okay? I'm in German, a guten and everything. Ah, guten, 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 which means good. Guten, 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 guten. I'm in France, I we thing. Ah, we, 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 everything, you know. But in Hungary, the Hungarian word for good, I love Hungarian language. The word for good is yo. So I'll go around Hungary going, yo, yo, yo. And they'll take me to church, and I'll look around, oh, yo, yo, yo. Brett, the pastor brings out his little kids. They go, oh, yo, yo, yo. Brings out his wife. I go, yo, mama. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that means good mother in Hungarian, okay? And I have to tell you this other word here. They sing this song in uh, Hungary called Jesus for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for you. But the word for you is a word that's in English, okay? It sounds like our English word. It's the word naked. So we're going to say, for you in Hungarian, you say naked. So they sing, Jesus naked, 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 naked. And I'm going, no way, no way, no way, no way, okay? So the word for you in Hungarian is the word naked. So if you want to say good for you in Hungarian, you say, yo, naked. <laughs> so it's a fun place to be, Hungary. So I'm making my way to the back of the bus, and there's, I mean, squeezing through armpits. I'm going, yo. And I always try to talk the language. Yo, yo, ho, no, yo, no, yo, no, yo, 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 yo. And I finally get to the back of the bus, and I tap the boy on the shoulder. He turns around, and he's taller than I am, looks down at me. I said, do you speak English? I don't know why we yell at people in foreign countries, but we do. He looks at me, and he says, I speak it very well. Good, I don't have to shout out you did. I said, I know you got a cap on that says JC. It, by chance... Does that stand for Jesus Christ? He said, yes. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior last summer at an English as a second language camp. I said, my name is Walker Moore. I'm a missionary from the United States working in Hungary for a while in the surrounding countries. I said, I'm looking to hire some young people to work for me as an interpreter. He goes, stop. I said, what's the matter, sir? He said, my name is Kuman Kolvach. This is my friend, Sylvie Nodge. He pointed a girl standing beside him. He said, Friday night, we graduated from high school. I said, congratulations. As we come and got our diploma, we had to tell the crowd what we want to do with our, li with our lives. And we told them we wanted to work for Jesus Christ. The problem is, we don't know where his employment office is. Well, in the country, only 2% believers. Where would you go to find to work for Jesus Christ? And he said, last night, Sylvia and I got together. And we had an all-night prayer meeting. We prayed all night long last night. We prayed, God, send someone to us, God, to use us for your kingdom. Oh, God, please, God, please, God. And he said, we prayed all night long last night that God would send someone to us that would use us for the kingdom. I said, Kuma, here I am. Sylvia, here I am. And they're still working for us, and they're doing incredible work. In charge of, he's now in charge of Jesus Film for 16 countries. She's in charge of a ministry that's working all across there among students and college campuses. And I got to thinking, what are the odds in a city of two million people, four million armpits I've seen up close and personal, that one tram would be late, one subway pull away, one perfectly good bus would leave us in the dust, and up comes the bus that has two kids in a city of two million people prayed all night that God would send someone to them, use for the kingdom. What are the odds of that? Any statisticians in here? Math people? Well, the answer is 100%. When you're a what? Willing witness, and your next heart beats a heartbeat of? What are the odds of that happening? 100%. It's always 100% when you're a willing witness. But I've learned something in life, being a willing witness. All those things that happened to me, my disappointment became God's divine appointments. Being a willing witness, God always moves you toward his seeking soul, 
through disappointments. I went to Walmart the other day and was out of bread. What's the deal with that? When was the last time Walmart ever ran out of bread? And I had to go to Aberson. Guess what God was doing? He was using disappointment to move me toward a divine encounter. He's always used to point. Now I'm going to tell you one more story, and then I'm done. Isn't it fast? Look how good it goes. I was going to a city called Orsalon on Yugoslavia border. My students are going down. They found it's a city of 30,000 people. They had two believers. I had a pastor who was going to take with me. We're going to start a church in this city called Orsalon. Take these two believers, start a new church plant. And we have a system how we take on a country, okay? Uh, we have a very, very cool deal. The train will pull in. The students are dressed in costume like knights of the round table. They're dressed up in costume. They get out, and they take their swords, which is actually PVC pipe, and they make a way for the king to come into the city. So when, the, when I see that little parting going in the train station, and they're holding people back, then I step out with my robe on, my crown on, and I step into the train station. I start nodding, and people start bowing, curtsying. They start doing all, I mean, it's just funny to see people reaction to it. Some get down and kneel at my feet. I mean, it just goes on. And what we do that, we do that to attract the crowd because not the kings come into the town, but the king of kings come into the town. Next thing, we get a crowd around us, and we've had a crowd as big as 110,000 people that surrounded us, and we present the gospel through chronological Bible story from the creation to the resurrection. Then we explain it to them and go out witness one-on-one -on -one and share the gospel and then introduce them to the new pastor and start Bible studies that way, home churches, and go into church. So this day, pulling the Arsalan, I've done this a thousand times, 48 countries around the world. I, just, I, I, I wear this costume six, seven days a week sometimes. I don't even remember having it on. I go to a bank in a foreign country. I'm in line. People are staring at me, and I forgot to have my crown on, my robe on, you know, just to get some money, you know. And uh, this day, we pulled the train station. They made the way. I stepped out. And as soon as I stepped out of the train, people go, ah! And they took their kids, and they started running as fast as they can out of the train station. And, I mean, it almost like a riot was going on. And they just started running away. And, and the kids looked at me, and I go, what was that all about? I couldn't figure it out. And so I said, let's get on the train. Let's go down, and let's come out the other side of the train, on the other side of the track. So we, we got on the train, and we got out of the other side, did the same thing. When I stepped out, People start running and people grabbing their children. They're crying, screaming. And this guy goes, you're the one, you're the one, you're the one. I go, the one what? Our mayor heard you was coming to town and he passed a law that if we're seen with you or listen to you, we go to jail or prison. And we can't be around you. You're, you're legal for us to be near. And that's why the people are running, screaming, because they, they don't want to be put in jail or prison, be caught near you. And I thought, oh, that's a bummer, isn't it? <laughs> I mean... We come to this country, present the gospel, and now people can't listen to us. Our students said, Walker, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to have one of those old-fashioned prayer meetings where you get on the floor and you, you wet the carpet with your tears. And so let's get our stuff. Let's walk to our university. And we're walking to the university where we're going to stay and have our prayer meeting. And we passed a little boy. I knew he was mentally handicapped. He was sitting on the curb, and he was sitting here rocking, and he was doing like this. And I said, you know what? I started student. This kid's not going to run from us. And in the scriptures, when you've done it to the least of them, you do it unto Jesus. And, and you always do your ministry for an audience of one, always for an audience of one. You don't care what the crowd is. I don't care if I have 10,000 people or one person. I always for an audience of one, and that's for him and for him alone. All ministries for him. And so we stood up, and we did it for this little boy, and he was clapping his hands, and he thought it was so exciting. The dragon came out, and he got scared. Then Jesus died, and he started crying, and then Jesus rose from the grave, and he was clapping again. And as we're doing this, a white van comes by, stops, and backs up, and a man leads out of the van. And after we got, he got out, he said, uh, are you the one the mayor does not want us to listen to? So, sir, we just got in. I don't know what's going on, but it appears to me that the mayor has passed a law against us. He said, yeah, you're the one. I said, that's the second time I heard this today. He said, you mind if I film your presentation? See, I own the TV station for all this part of Europe, for Yugoslavia, Slovenia, uh, Hungary, Slovakia. And I would like to put on the 5 o'clock news tonight uh, about what you do. Let me pray about it. Okay, so we redid the whole drama. He filmed it that night at 5 o'clock. Here's what the mayor does not want you to see. And he plays the entire 18-minute gospel presentation unedited with a whole thing going on. And the next day when we come out of the university dorm, there are throngs of people waiting for us because now we're famous. We are now movie stars. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, the media has a big control of people. And they're all there with the autograph books. And, 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 and all of a sudden, we couldn't hardly walk without throngs of people around us. And the mayor comes and says, I, I, I understand, I can't, I can't control this. 
You're already on television. They saw what your message was. So I'm, I'm going to give you a tent in the center square of town. You can do your thing in the tent. That's the only place you can do it in our city. I said, okay, I'll compromise with you. So we'll go there, and he had a little tent. It's about the size of your stage. He thought he could control what God was doing and not let many people in. So we took about half of it here, and about 20 people could stand over here and watch what we did. And we started for four days. Started in the morning, we started presenting the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. And we never stopped for lunch. We just kept on going. We just ate in, in the midst of the drama, drinking. And it was sun shining down on that plastic tent. And it was like an oven inside. And we finished the first day, started the second day. And there was always a crowd waiting. When the crowd was in there, there was a crowd outside in the sun waiting again to get their turn. And we'd talk to them one-on-one. And we'd introduce them to Christ, introduce them to the pastor. And they started to... Uh, a church and then the third day and the fourth day on the fourth day i was so tired i mean we've been going day and night it's a very physical thing we do with the gospel presentation and i'm sitting there uh, 10 o'clock at night so whew, I, I can't wait to get out of this town tomorrow we're supposed to go to romania i'm tired let's just go what let's you know get this thing over with and uh get a good night's sleep and this guy comes up to me and said can you do one more can you do one more can you do one more I'm tired. And God spoke to me and said, do one more. And since I'm a willing witness, my next heart beats a heartbeat of. And my obedience is usually someone else's salvation. I said, good, we'll do one more. He said, good, we need to walk down this dirt road about three miles to do it. I don't like to walk. I don't like to run. I don't like to exercise. I do have an exercise program. I sit in the bathtub, pull the plug, and fight the currents. That's what I do for exercise. But I told God as a willing witness, I go any place, anywhere, anytime, any circumstance. And when he spoke to me, I said, okay, we're going to go. So we're walking now. The Yugoslavia war is going on this time. And, and we get to this concrete bunker-looking little building, graffiti all over it. And I said to the guy who asked me, can I do one more? I said, uh, can you tell me what's inside there and what the graffiti? So I know what that is in English. What is 666 in this part of the world? He said, this is a satanic church. These are all the bad people, gothic and druggies. They're all in this building. And we want you to go in there and tell them about Jesus. Here, Jesus, come now. Come quickly. I mean, I'm in my heart. It's late at night. It's dark. Missiles are going over us, and there's this evil place. I'll go any place, anytime, anywhere, in any circumstances. So I went around the front, and there was a door, and I grabbed the door, and somebody was holding on the handle on the other side. With all my strength, I pulled on the door. I go, ah! Oh! And in the doorway was this guy, six foot, 13 inches high, had tall, tall purple spiked hair, dressed in gothic, gothic costume, had on black makeup, black lipstick, had rings through his eyebrows, ring through his nose, ring through his lips, ring through his ears, sticking stuff out of his face. His face was covered in metal. And I looked at him and go, whoa! He, he saw me with my king crown on, I'm sitting in my king robe there, and I'm looking at it like this, you know, as a king. He goes, whoa! And we go, whoa, 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 back and forth. And I just pushed him aside. We walked in, and we didn't say a word. We had play, and we start presenting the gospel. And it was dark. I can't explain to you the darkness in it. A baphomet, if you know what that is, on the floor, and evil inside of it, the darkness and the evil. And we just kept on going. And they took their beer bottles and started shaking beer and, and soaking our clothes. And now I'm totally soaked in alcohol. Then they're taking cigarettes and trying to, to hit us with their cigarettes. And we came to the crucifixion scene and the cross. And the cross came up. And all of a sudden they realized it wasn't about a king. It was about the king of kings. And half of them couldn't stand the cross. And they ran out of the room as fast as they can to get away from the cross. And we're standing there and finished the gospel presentation with Jonathan Cape, 16-year-old from San Antonio, Texas. His job to do what we call the net. And we teach him how do you bridge the people out there with the gospel. But he, that day he takes the microphone and he goes, Jesus wants you to get saved right now, right now he wants you to get saved. Thank you. And that's all he said. And chairs started flying. People started rushing. And somebody in the darkness fell to my leg. And somebody uh, grabbed my leg. And they started squeezing my leg and started going, And I looked down. The guy on my leg was the guy with the purple spiked hair and all the metal in his head. And he had hold my leg. It was on my ankles. And he kept on saying the same thing over. And I said to the interpreter, what is, I don't know what that means. He's saying, I need Jesus. I need him now. I need Jesus. And I need him now. And he was repeating that over and over again. And I picked him up. I said, let me tell you that about sin. How, he said, I'm an expert of sin. I need Jesus, and I need him now. And I led him to the Lord, and soon we said amen. I couldn't believe 
the countenance that changed on his face. I mean, joy. He was smiling from ear to ear. And he jumped and he grabbed me by the neck like this. He started jumping him down with joy in his heart. And all I could hear is ring a ring a ring, ring all that metal, bring a ring a ring a ring, yeah. And I think God has a sense of humor, you know. God the Father, son, come here, come here. And Jesus, come on. Look, look at that. The king and the thing are now brothers. Look what you did, you know. And we have Bibles, and we start passing out Bibles to the, 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 the crowd, and, and we ran out of Bibles. I said, I got another box back at the, my dorm room. Come with me. So now they're all walking back, and we're trying to teach them praise songs. And every time I teach somebody a praise song with the jingling going on their head, praise the Lord, ring, ring, ring. Okay. And we're trying to teach them all this stuff, and we're walking the three miles back. And I ran, I grabbed the box of Bible. I ran, I said, let me run to my room. I run to my room, and just loo- I got, got the box, opened it. Oh, no. No. It can't be. The box is mispacked. It doesn't have any Yugoslavian Bibles. It doesn't have Hungarian Bibles. It doesn't have Slovenian Bible. Somebody had put Russian Bibles in the box. And Russian Bibles for 45 years been underneath communist oppression. That's the language of oppression. If you give them a communist anything, they'll go, Ruski, and spit on you every time. They hate anything to do with the former communists and the oppression they spent. And they killed their parents and they killed their relatives and all they did during the communist reign. They just for 45 years. And anything Russian, I realized I can't give these men the Bibles because they'll be confused. They found freedom in Christ. But here's the language of oppression and the thing they hate the most. And I can't, any enemy would use that. And so I walked back out and I said, guys, I'm sorry. I thought I had another box of Bibles. I, I was wrong. I'll send one by train tomorrow. It'll be here at 5 o'clock from the Budapest train station. Yes, they'll be here to get it. But as a willing witness, I always know that my disappointment become God's divine appointments. Say that with me. My disappointment become God's divine appointments. I said, God, why are you up to? And I walked back to my room, and in my haste to get the Bible, there was a note taped my door. I didn't see it when my, I ran the first time. I looked at the note. It said, Walker. Do not go to Romania tomorrow. Go to Tahi instead. Sign R. Pod Ravis, President of the Hungarian Baptist Convention. Oh, can't it get any worse. Tahi. I don't want to go to Tahi. Have you ever been to Tahi? Anybody here been to Tahi? Don't go. Tahi is a mountain. And on top of the mountain is a Baptist encampment. But the problem is there's no public transportation there. And and you have to get on a country bus. Now you got grandma on her hairy armpit and a chicken on your lap and her goat sitting on your lap. And you're holding animals while you're getting down the road with grandma going to the market. And you get off the last stop and you have to climb. And it's like climbing these mountains out here. And I have to carry a box of Ruski Bibles. Have you ever been to Home Depot? Home Depot? Yeah. Office Depot. I keep on saying that. Office people and picked up a case of paper. Have you ever, how many have done that before? How heavy is it? It's real heavy. Can you imagine carrying a box of risky Bibles like that? It's, it's something you can't use. It's useless. So the next morning we got at 5 o'clock, got off at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at our last stop, and we're standing in the mountain. I got a 45-pound backpack. Got a 75-pound PA system. We have our props and stuff, and we have a box of Bibles. And I told the students, I said, we're going to take turns carrying this. So I handed it to the biggest guy. He took two steps and I handed it back. And for the next three and a half hours, I mean, we're climbing a mountain just like that, like your mountains here. For three and a half hours, we're climbing, pushing up. And my legs are screaming, put the box down, put the box, put the box down now. And I started getting cramps in my legs. And, and I'm sweating profusely. And, and I, even my sweat is sweating. And I see my hair hanging down, and there's drops of sweat coming off my hair. My T-shirt is totally soaked, and my backpack has now become the world's largest spun, uh, uh, sponge. And I think it has soaked up at least half the sweat, and it now weighs like 80 pounds. And, and I'm trying to climb this mountain. And when I got the top, I looked like something you can't imagine out of a horror movie. And I'm literally walking the camp, this box going, <sighs> <laughs> oh my, my legs oh. and I looked up and I saw the camp manager I've been there once before and he starts yelling in broken English big problem big problem big problem I said you think you got big problem I just carried a box of Ruski Bibles up this mountain big problem I said what's the problem 
You're supposed to come next week, not this week. You're here wrong week. I said, I'm just sitting here all week. I'm not climbing that mountain again. I'm just going to sit here. They come to my office, big problem, big problem. So I go in the office and sit in a chair and have the box on my lap, and he sits in his little chair. And I said, why, why can't I come this week? This is special week. I said, what's special about it? He says, this is a terminally ill week. All the kids right here are all dying. They're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. They're dying from leukemia, from cancer, from all kinds of stuff. And we brought them here to teach them how to die. And they have a name. They're called the Children of Chernobyl. They've been exposed to the radiation meltdown when the nuclear reaction went down. These were the kids that got hit the most by the radiation and they all developed cancer and leukemia, and they're all dying from this. They all have radiation poison. And the problem is they only speak Ruski, and you have nothing Ruski on you. Yo, yo naked. He goes, what? I have Ruski Bibles. He said, where did you get Ruski Bibles? Because in that part of the world, that would be the last thing you'd find on anybody, anywhere. It's like finding a Siberian winter coat on 4th of July in Orlando. It would be near, what are the odds of that? 100%. He said, maybe you hear the right night after all. And so that night I spoke to children Chernobyl and 100, I think 124 of them gave their lives to Christ. They all got Bibles and they all had Bibles take home to their parents, their families back home. I got to think of that. It took me a while to think about that. Still does. Those boxes of Bibles came from Indianapolis to our office in Tulsa. Tulsa to Shawnee, Oklahoma, where we trained at Oakland Baptist University. Then we went to the airport at Oklahoma City, and we went from there to Dallas, Dallas to you know Frankfurt, Frankfurt to Budapest. And every time that we moved, all those cases of boxes were restacked and restacked and restacked. And we got off the bus, off the airport, got on the bus. They got restacked, got restacked, gotten onto our, our, our office in Budapest. Then we went out to do our ministry in different Cities, we took three cases, three cases, three cases. And the week that we went to Orsalon, the three cases we took, we got there and found out they passed a law against us. And we didn't know what to do. Then all of a sudden, there we, the little boy, we just did this drum, and a white van came by. What odds of that? And then, then, then next thing you know, we are in the tent, and, and now and we thought we were done. The guy said, can you do one more? And I said, okay. I, I get a little spit, told me to do one more. And I had to walk three miles to do it, find myself at the satanic church like that. We did the gospel. We had Bibles for them, and we ran out of Bibles. I went back getting the boxes wrong. I was supposed to go to Romania the next day, but I wasn't in Romania. I had to say, go to Tahi. I didn't want to go to Tahi, but I ended up in the right mountain, the right time for the right group of children. What are the odds of that? When you're a what? Willing witness, and your next heart beats a heartbeat of? Folks, that is the gospel. That is all what he wants us to do. If you do that, everything in your life is taken care of. He'll move you to the right place, the right time, the right power, the right everything. I was doing this message here. And uh, there was a little girl named Elizabeth, 13-year-old. Do we have any 13-year-olds in here? Almost 13. Almost, that counts. Her name was Elizabeth. And uh, we get what's called an invitation church. You know, when you ask people, respond at the end to the message. And she was sitting in the church and we're singing that song, Just As I Am, without one plea. And also Elizabeth come up right in the service. And she just laid a little piece of white paper down. And she went and sit back down. And people kind of watched her and said, what in the world's going on? So her dad says, Elizabeth, what was that all about? She said, Dad, had, Dad God hasn't spoken to me. When he does, I've already laid my yes on the altar. Isn't that what it's all about, folks? See, a willing witness is someone who's already said, here's my yes. I wish I could tell you more stories. I got to tell about the president of Hungary last night. I wish I could tell you about me stopping a riot in Peru and what God did on that. I wish I could tell you what happened in Panama. I wish I could tell you about Arturo Moore, the most famous painter in all of that part of the world. I wish I could tell you about me being captured by the rebels of the Ivory Coast and how God uh, used that. And they, as they captured me, went behind enemy lives four times, or four times they captured me and how God took that. And also we started a church among the, the, the rebels of the Ivory Coast. I wish I could tell you what happened to me with the Coral People Group. I, I wish I wish I had all day long. I got a thousand stories. And it all started because a boy who they said was 
mentally handicapped, laid yes on the altar. And I said, Jesus, I'll go any place, anywhere, anytime. You can use me. That's all I know to do. August 9th was my 40th anniversary of laying my yes on the altar. I've taken over 13,000 students to the mission field. They're all around the world now. I've heard a number of my students who have already become martyrs for the kingdom, already gave their lives being killed in foreign countries for the gospel. But the question is, it's not about them. It's about you. You still got your piece of paper? I'm going to say a prayer, and this is what we're going to say today. But we want this church, you know, you call Paragon Church. I wish you'd be called the Church of the Willing Witness. That would be a more accurate terminology because God says, oh, you know what, there's somebody over here today that needs a touch from me. Oh, there's a yes right there. I'll just use this yes here. I'll just use this yes over here. Oh, I need somebody to go to Ethiopia. Oh, here's a yes over here. And I need somebody to go to, oh, there's a yes. And he just reached down and he just picks up the yeses. And he knows he has a willing witness. He'll do whatever he says. So we'll give an invitation this morning. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask the musician to play behind. And then I'm just going to give you a chance to come and say, Lord, and you just might want to do it, bend the knee. Lord, here I am. I just want to fall in line with what you want from me, obedience. And God, I don't know. It scares me to death. It still scares me to death. I wish I could tell you what happened to me on the plane the other day. But God wants to use you to be salt and light. And he does it when you're a willing witness. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for this time. We thank you for this church. And Father, even though it has the name paragon lord we pray that the spirit of it will be the willing witness and father that god will raise people up out of this church lord and father they begin to walk with that sense of anticipation Father, like it was the day at the airport i got kicked off a plane and i knew that you had a divine encounter for me and i walked from terminal to terminal trying to find the person just sensing it and i didn't find it until i got on the plane and the guy sat next to me and said guess what my wife just left me I said, God, I found you. May we walk through that anticipation, Lord, of keeping our eyes and ears open that you're doing something through us and wants to use us. And we ask this in your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand, this invitation should only be one heartbeat long. He's going to be the first one that says, I'm laying my yes on the altar. You just stand right now. And you come lay your yes on the altar right here. People already have done it. You come. You can put their yes on the altar. Thank you. Amen. And that's what I did, too. Laid my yes on the altar, too. Our yeses are together. Who else? As you stand right now and we go in invitation time, who can lay their yes on the altar? Thank you. Who else? God, here I am. Use me. Use me. Yes, Lord. Yes. I don't know what it means, but here's my yes. You haven't asked me to do anything today yet, so preach here, and I finished that. Do you have something else for me, Lord? If I do, you already have my yes. I'll go any place, anywhere, anytime.